this morning, we're going to have a lot of fun with the Scriptures, because um, the passage that uh, we're going to look at this morning is one of those passages that you, you read, and quite honestly, you want somebody else to preach on it, because it finishes with this kind of part to the story that you're thinking, wow, I'm not even sure that that's even allowed, and it's definitely not reflective of Jesus, so what the heck is this all about? So, um, Aaron did a great job in describing some of the consternation that you might have when you approach this passage. I'm going to give you just a little bit more. So, let's look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. Now, remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 15 and a half miles from Jericho. He's probably right on the outskirts of Jericho. Maybe he's a little bit further on towards Bethany, where Lazarus lives and where Mary and Martha live. But there's a crowd of disciples that include the 12, probably the 72, And then all of the other people that have been added to the discipleship band who are on their way to Jerusalem who will proclaim Jesus as king. So there's the background to the story as Jesus tells this parable. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take this miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. So they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Woo! 
Wow. Thanks for that, Jesus. That's awesome. So, uh, so you, you, you look at this parable and you think, my goodness, what kind of a parable is this? What kind of a, what kind of a story is this that Jesus is constructing for us to obviously convey the singular point that what it is that he's investing in us, he is expecting us to invest in others. Now, on a regular basis over these last couple of months, we've been looking at the five capitals that you can find throughout Scripture, especially in the teaching of Jesus. Spiritual capital with the currency of wisdom and power. Relational capital with the currency of family and friends, intellectual capital with the currency of knowledge and ideas, physical capital with the currency of time and energy, and financial capital with the currency of, at least here, dollars and cents. And we've looked at that together, haven't we? We've thought about How is it that God wants to grow this capital? How does he want me to invest this capital? So this is a fairly familiar theme and something that we've been thinking about quite extensively, though perhaps somewhat obliquely in these last couple of months. So the main point of the parable is not lost on you. But still like me, you're sitting there thinking, Kill them in front of me? What the heck is that all about? Well, you may say, well, maybe it's a reference to the devil and his demons and all those who choose to follow him who, on the last day, will be cast into the lake of fire. This this amazing panoramic, cinematic picture that you find in the last book of the Bible. Maybe, maybe it's a reference to that, and, and certainly that would be a correct understanding. But still, it doesn't quite get to the kind of uncomfortable reality that we have here in this parable, until you realize that this parable, unlike any parable that Jesus told, is actually a retelling of a historic event. This is Jesus using the story of the people to whom he is communicating and a story that they would be intimately familiar with. Jesus is simply telling a story that was common universally understood, and every element of it had a significance for the people who were listening. And unless you know that, you miss what it is that Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is he's using the story of the community to convey the content of the good news. Now, if you came to Dayton, it would be impossible not to use the story of the Wright brothers, the story of Mr. Kettering, who invents various things like the starter motor on vehicles that you started this morning. It would be impossible to 
not tell the story of NCR and the beginnings of that kind of skunk works that created IBM. It would be impossible not to mention the Enigma machine. It would be impossible not to mention the story of this community. And in the telling of that story, you would be able to convey the content of the good news of how God takes broken things and makes them new, takes weak things and makes them strong, appears to do impossible things that everybody says can never be done. You can't fly. Why would you think that you can do that? Jesus is telling the story of a man called Archelaus. He was one of the three sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had three, he had lots of sons, but the three principal sons that are known to history are Herod, the Tetrarch, the king of Galilee, Philip, the Tetrarch of the northern kingdom, and Archelaus, who was to be the king of Judea, which included Jericho, where he was going to have his palace, which was the palace of his father, and Jerusalem, where, of course, his father had built this magnificent edifice, now the temple of the Lord. Archelaus, like his father, was an evil man, a terrible person. And when his father died and Archelaus received his inheritance... The inheritance was that he would have rulership over this particular portion of the ancient land of Israel. But to have that inheritance, he needed to go to Rome to have it ratified, a distant country. And the, the way that he would, he would do this is like his two brothers and like all of the other minor rulers and, and vassal kings across the Roman Empire, he would go to Caesar Augustus in Rome, and there he would have his sovereignty confirmed. Well, on his way to Rome, a delegation from Judea got ahead of him and spoke against him and said, we can't have this man. He's so evil, he will create an evil situation in the world that we live in. Now, Caesar Augustus, he, uh, he was, like most rulers that were successful then and now, was able to kind of play both ends against the middle. And so, and so what he did is he decided not to make Archelaus the king. He just called him the ruler, which seemed to placate some of the people who brought the delegation against him. But he still made Archelaus the ruler of this region. And as soon as Archelaus came back, he started killing his enemies in such great numbers that even Caesar Augustus, the leader of the most brutal empire the world had ever seen, said, this is too much, and stopped him and removed him from power, sent him to France, I guess that was a big penalty, I don't know, but sent him to France, and there he lived out the rest of his days in relative luxury without his kingdom. 
and he put in his place a governor. And of course, the governor that we know is a certain man called Pontius Pilate. And if he was worse than him, just imagine how bad he was. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's just using the narrative of the people, something that's deeply wired into their understanding of themselves. It's kind of hard-baked into who they are. And he's using that familiar story to share with them a significant truth. So, if I was going to be preaching today on on, uh, this particular passage, I would make sure that you knew that. I would also point out that because I'm a preacher, I would um, most certainly point out that the king entrusted a gift to every servant. The idea of ten, the, 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 the idea of numbers in this story is, is particularly important. Numerology, we know, amongst the Jewish mindset was very important. Ten meant completeness. It meant, it meant all things being included. And so here is Jesus saying, all of the disciples are included in this, and they all get an equal share. So there's, so there's a trust that the king is showing. There is a, there is a token. See, I've done it already. There we are, I'll do that. Um, there, is a, there is a token of his trust. Ten miners. Uh, it's not somebody with a, a hat and a light, obviously. Uh, a minar is, is a, a unit of currency that was known at the time and was equivalent to a hundred days' wages for an average servant. And so to get ten, you get a thousand days' work or wage. A thousand days' wages, which is a pretty good length of time, isn't it? What is that, two and a bit years, two and a half years or so? So he's, he's giving a significant amount. Now, it's nothing like the talent that is described in, I think, Matthew 25, in a very similar story, a talent is a gigantic amount of money. But, but this is a significant amount of money, and it's an equal amount to each of the servants. So there is a trust, a token. There is a test. The king goes and expects them to do something with it. And in that test, there is, of course, the opportunity to share in the king's treasure. So, if I was to teach you this passage, I would teach this passage from the perspective that this is a historical story understood by the audience, and within that story there is a basic framework which, if you have a little bit of an insight or an understanding or a desire to alliterate, you can put it in such a way that people can remember it. So now you're thinking, okay, I'm kind of getting this. But I don't think we've gone to the depth that we could. Because this is still kind of Sunday school level, isn't it? Which is great. And all of us are children. 
And of course, we need to embrace our faith as children. But there are deeper things. There are things for the mature to embrace and to understand that will give us a greater understanding, a greater capacity, a greater capacity to to embrace what it is that God's saying if we're prepared to go down that path. Now, to do this, and I've mentioned this before, the way you do this is you look at other portions of Scripture and you say, is there a place in Scripture that elucidates, that elucidates, that that illuminates, that articulates what it is that we've been able to draw from the text already? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. Now Luke is a member of Paul's team. Paul is the writer of the letter to the Ephesians. And much of what you see in Luke's gospel is a kind of explanation of what it is that Paul is preaching and teaching the newly emerging church around the Mediterranean. And here, as he addresses this church and this region around the church of Ephesus, probably his most important work, Paul uses a picture, a picture of a king, a picture of a king who is going to receive his glorious, his, his glorious inheritance. And as the king goes to receive his glorious inheritance, he does the very thing that every king in every subculture of the Roman Empire always does. He takes the spoils of his victory and he shares those spoils with his people. In days of old, the returning victors of battles in the world of Rome and Greece would take the gold and silver and would, and would melt it and mint it into coinage. Nobody had coins before that. Nobody had currency before that. But these, these tokens were cast into the crowd. And as they were cast into the crowd, they were cast into the crowd with the face and the name of the conquering hero as a, as a kind of memento, as a, as, a, as a token of the victory now shared with the people. And as those tokens were taken and used, it became currency. It became the silver dollar. It became the thing that we understand as our money. It became the means of exchange. And Paul references this picture. Paul references this this understanding here in Ephesians 4 when he says this in verse 7, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says 
When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers, to prepare God's people for acts of service. Do you get it? Do you get the picture? Jesus has descended. He's had his call from the Father. He's descended into the very earthly lower regions and he's faced the challenge. The challenge, of course, principally in paying the debt of humanity once and for all. And as he is raised from the dead and is declared the victor over death and sin and the devil, Jesus says to his disciples, wait, wait in Jerusalem because I'm returning to the Father. And when I return to the Father, I will receive my kingship and I will send upon you Gifts. And those gifts will be many and various. But Paul here in Ephesians 4 tells us that whatever the gifts are, they appear to be expressed in the five ministries of Jesus. The body of Christ takes on the ministry of Jesus. Just turn to your neighbor and say, the body of Christ takes on the ministry of Jesus. Just do that. Quick, go on. I don't think you believe it. So say it again to somebody else, even if you have to reach over the aisle. Come on. The body of Christ receives the ministry of Jesus. Who's the first apostle on the planet? Yeah. <laughs> Who's the first prophet on the planet? Yes. Who's the first evangelist bearer of good news saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news? Who's that? Jesus. Who is the good shepherd? Jesus. Who is rabbi called the teacher? Adults, aren't you glad that the kids are here today? It's the ministry of Jesus to be the one who's sent. It's the ministry of Jesus to be the one who listens to the voice of the Father and speaks the Word of God. It's the ministry of Jesus to gather all of the lost sheep 
into a single flock. It's the ministry of Jesus to declare the good news of the kingdom. It's the ministry of Jesus to hold out the truth because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, a lot of people have read this passage and they've misunderstood it and they thought that what Paul was talking about was men in suits. Because obviously only men can be one of the five ministries. And if it's men, then they obviously have to, you know, they have to look the part. And that's foolishness. Because obviously, when Paul says, each one of you, he's not referring to gender. He's not referring to class. He's not referring to background. He's not referring to culture. He's referring to how many of us? To all of us. Because the whole body of Christ does the whole ministry of Jesus. Otherwise, what's the point? Now, it will change the way that you look at this passage because you have to ask yourself, Okay, which one of the five am I? And if you're like the third servant who is defined by fear, if you're like the third servant who's defined by a scarcity mentality, if you're like the third servant who who is so risk-averse that they'll never invest in anything, then you're clearly going to look at the passage and say, I mean, I've tried, but I can't see, I can't see where I'm any of those five things. Now, a lot of us have been in that place. And a lot of us have been supported in that place by people on the platform who want us to stay in that place because it does them good. But it's utter heresy. Be clear about it. It's utter heresy. If it's not the whole body of Christ doing the whole ministry of Jesus, what's the point of him dying for all of us? We all get to live the resurrected life. Okay. So maybe now you're saying, well, he's, he, I don't want to get him any more angry. I think, he, I th- I think he, I'll, I'll just agree with him, for t- for the, at least for the moment. Don't look at him weird, honey. He'll start talking to us. So the real question then is, what are we going to do with those miners? What are we going to do with this distribution of gifts? What are we going to do with this, this equal sharing of the grace of Jesus to the body of Christ so that the body of Christ does the ministry of Jesus? What are we going to do with it? Now, I promise you I'm not going to embarrass or humiliate or make fun or any of those kinds of things. I mean, I mean you may not trust me with that statement, but I promise you I won't. 
I mean, some people would say that, um, uh, that ridicule is my love language, but it, I promise you it isn't. What I'd love is I would love just a person within the congregation this morning who, who believes that they may be a teacher. They, they may have a teaching gift. Just put your hand up if you've got that. Okay, we're going to get that lady there at the back there. Would you come up and sit on, the, sit on this front pew here with Sally? Uh, somebody who thinks that they may have a pastoring gift, a, a gift of a shepherd. Anybody? There's a three-year-old up there. I think it's going to be a complicated, that one. Anybody got a shepherding? Uh, sit, sit right there with Sally. There, look, next to my wife. There you go. There's got to be somebody with a shepherding gift in the building. It's impossible that there's not. Yeah, Claude? Come and sit up there with Sally, okay? Um, what about an evangelist? Anybody in the building, that young lady up there, genuinely believes that Jesus has given her lots of grace. I love that. Well done. Um, it's Chris's daughter. Evangelist. It's somebody who's got the, 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 the sense that... Right there, come on. Rebecca, yeah? Uh, what about the prophetic? Operating in the prophetic gifting. Yeah, Car- yeah. Come on. Kath- Catherine the Great. And we've got four women and one man. One man. We don't have men at the moment. We have one man. Uh, is there anybody who has a kind of apostolic gift? Let me explain what an apostolic gift is because we always assume that it's kind of a scary kind of boss of the church gift. The, the, the apostle is a person who's sent out. They sense that they're, they're constantly on mission. And very often, they're the pioneers and the planters of new kingdom adventures. Who, who thinks that they may be in that category? Chris is pointing somebody, and it's right there. Who is that? It's who? Amber. Thank you, Amber. Come on. You've got, I mean, I hope this is all right. Can you sit kind of over here somewhere? All right. Um, actually, Amber, why don't you just come straight up? <laughs> yeah, I'll get, I'll, I'm sure you're just loving this for every moment of it, aren't you? Um, now, if you would um, if you'd stand close enough to that microphone so that you're rather delightful. Oh, you're going to take that. You're allowed to do that. That's very good. Well done. Um, so, Amber... Just give us a little bit of an idea about how this works for you, okay? okay. When, when and how did you sense this calling to be a pioneer of new things? Um, I think this calling was one that came pretty quickly for me. I think my junior year of high school, I really um, read stories of other people that had gone out, and I just felt a deep sense in my spirit that this is what I am supposed to do. And... and I'll talk about what, how it's going to manifest itself and how it has manifested itself and will in, in the future. But as, as an apostolic person, and th- that's what I'm going to do. Instead of calling you Apostle Amber, I'm just going to say, as an apostolic person, what do you think you would like to say to the church in general? Not necessarily Apex, but the church in general. What did the church need to do? Uh, uh, I think the church 
needs to just be willing to use our gifts that we have in the small ways. I feel like for a long time I limited my giftings and felt like I have nothing to offer. But really when I was willing to do the small things, God used that to be big things and used um, people that came into my life that I was able to minister and work with them right where I was, um, doing the things that I felt gifted to do. Brilliant. Now, what's your plan as a, as a kind of expression of your apostolic calling? What, what are you going to be doing in the future? Oh. I'm not 100% sure. It's been a crazy year. Um, traditionally, we've worked in China, and our hope and plan is to go back to China and to work there. Um, Round of applause here, please. Amber, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Now, I swear to you, I've, I've spoken to Amber and prayed with her once in my life. I, I, I didn't even recognize her. I think you had your hair cut or something. But, um, so, there's, so there's Amber. And all I asked of Amber was this. What's the up dimension of being an apostolic person? What's the in dimension of being an apostolic person? And what's the out dimension? In other words, what's it feel like what was the story of your sense of calling to do this particular thing? That's what you need to be asking yourself right now. As you look back across your story with the Lord, what were the significant moments where God revealed himself to you and began to shape you in the way that you now are? And maybe you've not thought of yourself as one of the fivefold ministries, but, but most certainly as a believer... That would be the expectation in the heart of Jesus. And he's not only giving you that gift, but he's expecting a return on it. So the first thing to do is to think about the calling. What's the sense of calling? What's the sense of passion? What's the sense of purpose that I have? Secondly, what do I think the church needs to do? When you start thinking about that, you, you begin to get a sense of the heart of Jesus for his people, and it'll be slightly different from what other people think. And it's supposed to be like that so that we collectively collaborate on seeing the church of Jesus Christ grow up. And then thirdly, how does this ministry, how does this gift express itself in the world outside the bounds of the people of God? Okay, do you want to hear one other person up here maybe? Yeah? Do I hear a yes in the building? Yeah? Who wants to come on up? Nobody wants to come. What about you? Okay, then Rebecca, come on. Come on. They were all trying to avoid my gaze for a moment there. Okay, so now Rebecca, you put your hand up for? Uh, the evangelist. The evangelist, okay. Okay, so... so Rebecca, tell us a sense in which you heard God say to you that it's about the good news and it's about sharing that good news with other people. Just, just very briefly. Well, I was kind of thinking about with all your questions. Get a bit close to the microphone, yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, I just remember when I first accepted Christ. Yeah. And I really felt like... Um, I would have to become this different person. Uh, uh -huh. I mean, I really thought physically, like I'd have to wear different clothes, mm -hmm. have a different look. Mm -hmm. And um, I was completely wrong. Yeah. And I just feel like um, 
I'm sure there's other people that feel that way. Yeah. And that I feel like um, he has just brought us, me, to a place of uh, living amongst those that don't know Christ. So the good news is that the change is not about external changes. The good news is it's about an internal change that only Jesus can do. Is that, is that a fair exposition of what you just said? Yes, definitely. Brilliant. Well, I'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah? So what do you think the church needs to do then? Just tell us what you think. Not necessarily Apex, and we don't have to get personal, but just the church in general. What do you think the church in general needs to do if they're going to follow in the footsteps of what you sense God's calling? Well, I kind of feel like um, we have a temperament of judging others. Um, uh-huh. And... W- we're really not walking in those shoes, and I don't think Christ mm-hmm. asks us to do that. I think he wants us just to love others right, um, and huh. share his love and grace with others. Huh. So we're to be good news rather than bad news. Would that be fair? Yeah, we're not, we're not here as people's judges. We're here to show them the good news of Jesus, Amen. who saves us from judgment. Yeah? And... When you think about your life kind of outside of the bounds of the, the people of God, what, what is it you think about? You know, you're going to, you're going to Kroger's, you're, you're going to Costco, you're seeing your friends when one day the coffee shop opens again. And, I mean, what is it that's going on in your mind? What, what are you thinking about as far as the people out there is concerned? Well, I just, I guess for me personally, I just, um, I've always... I kind of always go for the underdog. So um, probably just wanting to embrace mm-hmm. the love of Christ, um, sharing it with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the evangelist is a person who's looking for the least and the last and the lost, yeah? Don't you love this? can have lots of money. It has nothing to do with status. Of course, like of course. Round of applause, please. Well done. Thank you. So, so we've got a, a bench of, of um, ministries down here. It's kind of fun, isn't it? Sally's apostolic, so we've got all five of them represented down here. I wonder whether a good thing for us to do as we close this time of teaching is to have them stand as our representatives. And how about we pray for them and then pray for ourselves as we do that. How about that? Is that a good deal? And Amber, you can, you can come as well if you would like to. That would be lovely. So why don't you guys just stand up? Why don't you extend your hand towards them? And as you do that, as you do that, remember that we're praying. We're praying not only for these five people here, but we're praying that God releases the ministry that they represent across the body of Christ. Is there an amen in the building for that? And in your house churches this week, I would love you to look at the questionnaire channel mentioned at the end. The questionnaire that will give you a way into understanding whether you're one of the five. You are one of the five if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, do you know what? It's so much fun being a Christian. Just get in on it. It's crazy to get kind of left behind, isn't it? So extend your hand toward these five sweet, dear people. Ask that God would bless them. Lord, thank you that your kingdom 
is coming among us, that we're seeing the revelation of your presence in our midst. We pray, Lord, in our households, in our house churches, and here in our gatherings, that we would see more of that. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as we see more of you, we would see more of your work, more of your serving, more of your ministry among us. And we pray, Lord, for these representatives of the body of Christ, that you'd bless them, that you'd strengthen them, that you'd encourage them, that you'd protect them, that you'd provide for them in every way, and that, Lord, you'd release them in great measure to do the ministry that you've called them to. And Lord, I pray that none of us would be hiding our minor in a cupboard somewhere. I pray, Lord, that none of us would be hiding our ministry away. I pray, Lord, that all of us would be released from the the mentality of scarcity. I pray, Lord, that all of us would be released from the risk aversion. I pray, Lord, that all of us would embrace the ministry that you've given us and share it with the church and the world. And Lord, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much.